Turn in your Bibles, if you would, tonight to Daniel chapter 10. So I shared with you as we began these last three chapters, this is really kind of forms a, a single message. The last three chapters are all aimed at the very last days. And as we get to the last half of chapter 10, we're going to pick up in verse 14 tonight. Really what is happening is, is Daniel is, is being strengthened in the Lord because things are going to get ugly. And there's some tremendous spiritual truths in the last half of this passage of, of Scripture. And we're going to see that this is not the only time that these words have been basically spoken. It is certainly for each of us as we think about you know, our lives and as we go through difficulty. We are never alone as the body of Christ, ever. The Lord is with us in absolutely everything that goes on in our lives. Uh, he has assigned, as we will see in this particular passage of Scripture, angelic hosts to help. Uh, he is there for us. And, and a lot of times we feel like, you know, we just there's just no way to win this. And if it relied on you or relied on me or even the church for that matter, the answer to that is you're, you're correct. But not when you figure out who's on the other side of the equation. It's the Lord and his hosts, and he is doing battle on your behalf. And so Daniel gets that vision because he's already been told, hey, it's going to get ugly for the nation of Israel. Your people are going to go through it. And we're going to see more of that as, as we head in, especially into chapter 11. Um, but the Lord's really kind of setting him up. He's saying, you know what? I've got it. I, I've got your back. You can count on me. I will be there when you need me. I will fight the fight that you can't fight. I'll be fighting the fight behind the scenes. And that really is the picture here in these last uh, ten verses or so. And so I really encourage you to take some notes because there are some, there are some wonderful truths as we pick up in verse 14. Father, we thank you for this time tonight in your word. And as we seek to know you a little bit better, Lord, as we learn to trust you a little bit more frequently, God, as we realize that we're not alone in the battles that we fight while we're on this earth, God, may may we be strengthened and encouraged and built up. And so, God, as we study your word, cause us to draw deeply from it. Help us to rest and trust in you in those difficulties that we just don't see a way through. Help us to cry out to the Lord. We bless you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 14, and he says, speaking of that man who's coming, and as I shared with you last time, I think that there is no explanation but that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. It's a Christophany is the actual theologic word that we would use for it. It's an appearance of Christ. Uh, during the Old Testament times, prior to his coming to us as Emmanuel, God with us. But I want you to remember that when we think of the Lord, we cannot ever think of him in any other way than he is also God. And by definition, God has no beginning, because Jesus says of himself, he is the Alpha, which is the A, and the Omega, which is our Z, he's the beginning and the end, okay? 
So when you talk about Jesus, we like to talk about Jesus for a period of time that's roughly 33 years, 32 and a half years. We kind of see Jesus as this Savior who came to earth. He was a babe. He grew up and... You know, he he did all the things that a child does, and he grows into a man, and he's crucified, and he's buried, and all those things are absolutely true and wonderful. But Jesus was Jesus before the foundation of the world. Jesus was not just Jesus for 33 years, and Jesus will continue to be Jesus long after this world turns to dust. And so when we think of Jesus, we need to be careful to remember that he has always been God. And so when we get to this, it's hard to kind of put those two things together. Well, Jesus hasn't been born yet, so how can this be Jesus? Because Jesus is not just a man, he's God. He's Emmanuel, he is God with his people. So it really is a wonderful way for us to look at it as he made his appearance as a child and he lived for a while here on this earth, but he's always been Jesus. And he will always be Jesus in the future. And so, now I'm here to explain what will happen to your people in the future. And I I want you to remember that this book is one of the books that the Dead Sea Scrolls provided so much help for us in. So I shared with you before If you take the copies of the book of Daniel from the Dead Sea Scrolls, they are identical to the version that you have that's translated into English. There is no difference. And so when we look at this word, it's a word spoken about the nation Israel before the coming of the Messiah, about the power of the Lord himself in the lives of the Jewish people and for us to draw from that well saying, you know what, if God be for us, who can be against us? You know, if, if we're here tonight by the grace of God, and God's called us to, to live lives of purpose while we're here, then surely he has a plan. And, and sometimes it looks like, yeah, God kind of doesn't have his hands on anything. It's just like kind of everything's happening and he just kind of picks up the pieces. Not so. He has had his hands on this earth and on you from before you were even born. He knew you. He knew me. He knew us. He knew the world. And he knows what's going to happen to the nation Israel. And it's an exciting time to be a Christian. We live in a time like there's never been one since the foundation of the world. And so he says, I want to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For this vision concerns a time yet to come. Very, very important. Because as we look at that time yet to come, it provides us with the backdrop for what will be ahead in the rest of this vision. Because if you look at it as someone who is a replacement theologian would, and you spiritualize Israel, and you spiritualize the body of Christ, and you throw out God's dealing with the nation Israel, and you just say it's all been fulfilled, and these things are all, in essence, uh, just kingdom issues, then you this whole passage basically loses all of its meaning. Because he's speaking very specifically about the nation Israel, and he's speaking very specifically about a time that is yet to come, and it is still yet to come. The difference is, is it's very close to coming now. Then it was thousands of years out. 
today might be this year. Could start tomorrow. These are things that could unfold right before our eyes. And while he was speaking to me, and I want to look at these next several verses as a whole. And while he was speaking to me, I looked down to the ground, unable to say a word. And then the one who looked like a man, and notice it says, looked, touched my lips, and I opened my mouth, and I began to speak. And I said to the one standing in front of me, I am terrified by the vision I have seen, my Lord, and I am very weak. How can someone like me, your servant, talk to you, my Lord? For my strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Daniel recognizes who he's talking to. Your Bible likely has a error in it in this passage, and it, you'll probably find that Lord is not capitalized in either one of those instances. It should be capitalized. The reason it's not capitalized is because of the word that is translated into Lord here. It's the Hebrew word yada. And that Hebrew word can be translated either direction. It can be translated down to something like sir, or it can be translated up to mean literally a, a place of veneration. In the context, who is this? It's Jesus. In the context, what's he talking about? Something yet future. In the context, who's he talking to? He's talking to Daniel in a vision these both should be capitalized, though they are probably not. It's a minor issue, because in the context, Lord can also mean my ruler, my leader. It can mean a bunch of different things. But if you lay hold of the fact of who he's talking to, what's being said, it becomes very clear that Daniel's talking to none other than the Lord. That's why his face is pointed at the ground. That's why his strength is gone. And that's why he can hardly breathe. He's just in the presence of God himself. He's saying, you know what? I don't even know what to say. I shouldn't even be standing in your presence. And I would remind you, this is not the only time that this scene is unfolded. There's another one that probably some of you know in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning verse 5. And of course, this comes at a time in Isaiah the prophet's life when godly king Uzziah has died. Uzziah was a hero to Isaiah. As far as Isaiah was concerned, Uzziah the king was perhaps the greatest, most godly man that existed on the face of the earth, and Uzziah has died. And Isaiah's going, man, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? Who am I going to turn to? This comes up in our lives very frequently. When God allows something that, that we lean on to be taken from us, maybe it's somebody that we love that's taken home. Maybe it's a, it's a situation with our government. Maybe it's something at work. There's something that you've been leaning on, but it isn't the Lord. Not necessarily bad. Uzziah was a great king. He was a godly king. He was a godly man. But Isaiah was trusting in Uzziah, not the Lord. And so it comes at a time when Isaiah now has that crutch kicked out from underneath him. And it says in verse 5, And so I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, he was trusting in Uzziah previously. Now he realizes his fallacy, and he needs to trust in the Lord, and he's seen the Lord. And he's like, man, I'm such a knucklehead. 
I've been trusting in the wrong God. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my lips with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity has been taken away, and your sin has been purged. You see, Uzziah couldn't do that. The king could not remit sin. He couldn't make it okay with God. Uzziah could lead, he could direct, he could make life generally better. But a lot of times we trust in the wrong thing. And so Daniel and Isaiah see roughly the same thing. And they're like, man, how in the world can I stand in the face of the Lord? The good news is, is the Lord comes to us when we're in that place so that we can get our eyes back on the Lord. He ministers to us in that time of great need and actually very often through the need itself or the difficulty itself so that we'll recognize that we have not been trusting the Lord and we've not had his peace and we're going to go on to see the results of this encounter. You see, our problem is we start trusting in stuff and in things and in people. As wonderful as godly influence is in our lives, those godly people are not the Lord. Their words are not the word. And so very often we we start to trust in something other than the Lord himself. And so the Lord reminded Isaiah. The Lord is going to remind Daniel The Lord also reminded Joshua in Joshua chapter 5. It says there in verse 13, And now when Joshua was near to Jericho, here here comes Joshua, a story that you all know. He's going to come to Jericho. Uh, He's entered the land. The rest have died or will die in the wilderness. He has the faith to go in. They're at Jericho, and he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua asked him a question. He said, are you for us or our enemies? What have you come to do? How confusing can life be at times? Amen? He's just like, I don't know what to do. Is this guy for me? Is he against me? Is he for the Lord? Against the Lord? Sometimes we don't know. The reply was neither. He said, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I've now come. You see, Joshua didn't need another guy. Joshua didn't need another general. He didn't need another commander. He didn't need another soldier. He didn't need another book. He didn't need another human counselor. Joshua needed the Lord. And when Joshua needed the Lord, the Lord came. This is what he says. Joshua then falls down on his face on the ground before that one who's standing with the drawn sword. What message does my Lord have for his servant is what he cries out. The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the ground that you stand on is holy. You see, the picture is this. In that time when things get really difficult and really hard, and we are pressed to the extent of our life, and there's nothing else we can do, nowhere else we can go, no one else we can talk to, we have the Lord. And sometimes it takes us getting to to the bare remnant of who we are 
before we'll realize, man, I'm going up against a fortified city of Jericho. Nobody's ever taken this city but for the Lord. The greatest king in all the land has died, and woe is me, I'm undone. I don't know what I'm going to do but for the Lord. Daniel is going to see this vision that the, the nation Israel is going to go through hell but for the Lord. The Lord before us, who can be against us anyway? If we are in Christ, are we not more than conquerors through him who loves us? You, you see, the picture here is, how big your God? And are you looking for him? Are you trusting in him? Are you expecting him to come? Do you believe that he's fighting the battles that you can't see? Because as we saw last time, there's a battle raging. We're going to see more of it here in this chapter in just a moment. The war's being fought. There's a war being fought for your marriages right now. There's a war being fought for your children's souls right now. There's a war being fought for this nation right now. There's a war being fought for this world right now. We think of world wars. There's been a world war that's been going on since day one, since the Garden of Eden. Satan declared war on mankind because he was told, you'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Huge difference. Satan knows to some degree his time has got some limits. And so he declared war on mankind. And at times it seems like Satan's winning, doesn't it? You look around the world, you're like, man, how much worse can it get? But for the appearance of the Lord. And he shows up just when he needs to. Right when we are about to go over the falls. I remember one time I was when I was down in Brazil. World Heritage Site. Matter of fact, if you watch the X Games this year, which I've been, I like watching the X Games. People are crazy. You watch the X Games, they're actually going to do one of the venues that they're going to have for the X Games is at the Falls of Iguazu in Brazil. It's really the world's largest group of waterfalls. They kind of fight back and forth who has the most gallons going over. And all, but trust me, it's huge. The Argentinian side is two and a half miles long. Okay, There's a lot of water going over it. But I, I remember sitting there, and, and I'm watching these guys on the Argentinian side. And something you need to know about Argentina Argentina is a whole lot like northern Mexico in a lot of ways. It's just like, oh, well, sure, we can get, get close to that waterfall. You know, Jose, build a bridge out there. You know, and he just, like, gets a few crates and throws them out there. And it's just like people are standing out, and they're looking over the edge of this fall. And I'm thinking, you people are nuts. You're looking at how close you can get to the edge. And, and I actually watched this one guy who got on, there's actually handrails, I'm exaggerating a little bit, there's handrails, and the guy's on the top of the handrail with his camera, and the dude's got a hold of the back of his belt like this, and he's hanging out trying to get over the cliff even further to look over this waterfall. And I'm like, man, isn't that a picture of how we are in life? I mean, we get so close to plunging over, and I can just see the Lord going, no. You don't want to be out here. Get back. And he's holding us back. And we don't even know that. The Lord has it under control. By the way, I'm not encouraging you to be an idiot and go on the outside of a handrail and hang over a waterfall to prove the point. But my point is, 
in the midst of those very, very, very dangerous things, the Lord's there. That's why Isaiah could say, man, woe is me, I'm undone. While he's saying this, Daniel just bows his face towards the ground. What do you think was so breathtaking about all of this? Why, why would Daniel not be able to speak? I believe there's only one explanation. He's in the presence of the Lord. He's standing before the holy God that created the universe. And that God has come at a time when he needs God desperately. And it just takes his breath away. It's the same thing that Thomas recognized. He said, my Lord, my God, how did I, how did I miss this? Now notice the results as we pick up in verse 18. And then the one who looked like a man touched me again, and I felt my strength returning. You see, sometimes when we think we can't go another inch, if one more thing comes to our plate, if we end up having to do another minute of what's going on, we're not going to make it. It is in those times very frequently when we have exhausted ourselves, and I'm talking about the humanness of who we are, your mind, your strength, your talent, your gifts, your money, your home, your car, your whatever, name it. The human you. When you've run out of you, what you find standing on just the other side of the you is the Lord. I don't have any more of me. I'm out of gas. I don't think I can stay in this marriage another minute. I can't work for this person another second. If I have to stay in the state of California for two more, we are out of our minds in this state. You know, we go through all these things, and right on the other side of that is the Lord doing battle for us. The enemy wants to press it just a little bit further. The enemy wants to finish you off. The enemy has his sights on you, and the Lord is just outside of your spiritual view fighting a battle for you. It's like this. Daniel's over here battling in his heart and his mind. And the Lord is over here battling with Satan and his in, and the enemies of God, the demonic forces of hell. And he's saying, hang on just a little while longer, Daniel. He says, don't be afraid. Notice the things that are said here. Would you underline verse 19? The Lord comes to Daniel. He sees something he doesn't want to see. He's aware of things he doesn't want to be aware of. He knows it's not good. The Lord comes and touches him, and he feels his strength begin to return, and he says, don't be afraid. You're deeply loved by God. Can you imagine what Daniel was actually thinking right now? You see, remember, he's at the end of his life. He's probably 82 or 83 years old, one of the two. He's at the end of his life. He's fought the good fight. He's run the race. He's done everything that anyone could possibly ever ask of someone who loves God. He has stood when everybody else has kneeled. He has failed to bow to the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. He has stayed the course. He, he's, he's now at the end of his life, and, and he hears the vision, yeah, but 
your people are still going to suffer. It's going to be real bad. And Daniel's going, oh, I can't, I can't do this. Don't be afraid. You're deeply loved by God. Notice what he says next. When you realize you're deeply loved by God, the next thing that should happen is you should be at peace. Because no matter what else happens, you're deeply loved by God. And therefore you can be at peace. And this really is a picture of who we are actually in Christ. Because I'm deeply loved by God because of the blood of Christ. Without the blood of Christ, I would not be deeply loved by God. I would still be an enemy of God. But because of the blood of Christ, I'm deeply loved by God. What's the result of that? The peace of God. Be at peace. Take heart. Be strong. And as he spoke these words, I suddenly felt stronger. And then I said to him, Now you may speak, my Lord, for you have strengthened me. And he replied, Do you know why I've come? You know why I've come? Soon I must return to fight against the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. Daniel, I was in this war. Now think about who this is. It's the Lord himself. Daniel, I was in a war with Satan himself. I was battling the enemy. I was hindered so much so that I called on a couple of archangels to come help me out because it was ugly. But I so still had my eye on you, my child, that I knew exactly when to come to you. I could see you were struggling. I could see you weren't going to make it. I could see you didn't understand. I could see you couldn't take another piece of information unless I came to you. So he said, I just came from battling the prince, the spiritual prince of Persia. And then against the spirit prince of the kingdom of Greece. He said, between these two great battles, as I'm fighting the enemy... Daniel, I've never lost sight of you. I never misplaced you. Uh, It didn't come as a shock to me that this information and what you've gone through this whole nearly 70 years of captivity that you've been here fighting the fight faithfully, I've never lost sight of you. I've had you right in the middle of my view. And he said, I've come to you now because you need me now. You were okay ten minutes ago and you're going to be fine after I leave, but you need me now and I'm here now. Family of God, this is a spiritual truth you must lay hold of. When you need the Lord, when you need an extra angel, you have it as God's kids. You have the power necessary behind you in the spirit realm to fight the fight when you can't fight anymore. Doesn't mean you won't go through tough things. Daniel went through horrific things. And he's going to get a vision of even worse things. But when you need the Lord, the Lord's there. He's never late. He's also not early. He doesn't come needlessly. When you need him, he's there. 
we can stand without shame, without fear. Notice that his attitude kind of changes here. As soon as he realizes what's going on, it's like, oh, it's you, Lord. The one who gives me peace. The prophet Isaiah, again, much the same thing. Isaiah 41 says there in verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. You don't need to be afraid. Sure, the Assyrians are doing their thing. It's been ugly. There's only one tribe left. When Isaiah wrote those words, there weren't 12 tribes. There was one tribe, the tribe of Judah. There were Judites. That's it. There was no Asher, no Dan, no Manasseh. Those guys are gone. They've already been taken captivity. The northern kingdom does not exist anymore. There's just Judah. Be not dismayed, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I'm battling Satan over here, and I'm holding you up with the other one. That's the picture. I got this battle under control, and I got your life in view. And see, to me, that's unbelievably important. Because I kind of get the whole concept of God taking care of the universe. Amen? I think most, most people actually do. Even if they don't believe in the Lord, they actually believe that there is a supreme being, and that supreme being is very powerful, and he goes about the universe kind of keeping things in check. Most people actually think that, even if they don't believe in a personal God. They believe in a supreme being who kind of holds things together. But what I love about this passage, and the passage in Joshua, and the passage in Isaiah is, that same supreme being also has got me by the belt as I'm hanging over a waterfall. When my life comes under attack, the same God that's fighting Satan over the universe is able to come to my aid directly. And if I need an angel or two, I've got that as well. It goes on in verse 20. For soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and then I'll go uh, to the prince of Greece, and he'll come. But notice what he says next. But first, I will tell you what's written in the book of truth. This is one of those passages that people have fought over for centuries. Because the first thing that happens is, well, there was no Bible. How can there be a book of truth? And so the debate over whether this phrase ought to be here or not. And I'm going to help you understand it. Because it's real simple. And you all know the passage that I will refer you to, and it's the very first chapter of the Gospel of John. And if you look at that passage, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus himself has always been the Word. He's always been the bread of life. He's always been the light of the world. He's always been the living water. He's always been the way. He's always been the resurrection. He's always been the truth. So when this says, I, I want to tell you about those things that are written in the book of truth, 
What he's saying is, is I want to convey to you the truths that already were before they ever got codified in your Bible. These truths existed in heaven before they ever got written down by the authors of the Bible. These 66 books didn't come from men, they came from God. And they have always existed. They are timeless truths. And so as Daniel receives this message, he says, Hey, I want you to know what's been written in the annals of heaven that will one day be written down by man. I'm going to give you a glimpse of things in advance because they were true before the foundation of the world. I'm going to tell you about them now, and when they happen, you're going to know that they were the truth. And so he begins to open up the doors of the spirit realm. Verse 21, he says, but before I do that, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. In other words, before I get into it, I want to let you know that all this stuff was planned out. It's not random. Satan isn't actually winning. Looks like he is. Father God, Jesus the Son, Holy Spirit have had it under control since day one. It's all part of a grand plan. We find that hard to believe. He's telling Daniel, don't worry, I've got it under control. For there is no one to help me against these spirit princes except Michael. Notice what he says. Very important, singular word there, your spirit prince. Why does he say that? Kind of gives us a glimpse into the things of the the world that is outside of the one that we see. For I have been standing beside Michael in his support and his defense since the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede. He says, I've always been there. I was never not there. There's always been enough help. And in fact, you had an angel assigned to you, Daniel, the whole time. And not just a regular angel, an archangel. Not not just, you know, one of the cheapies, you know, the Walmart angel group. You've got the Walmart angels and you've got the Nordstrom angels over here. It's kind of like the ones on your Christmas tree. You know, you've got the ones that... It's like, ooh, don't know where those came from. Then you've got the crystal one that came from North. This is a crystal one. You had Michael, the archangel, with you always. And it's been so since the day of Darius the Mede. This whole time when you've been thinking, man, it's just not good and getting good. I mean, after all these years, I mean, is this, is, is this what it comes down to? And we get that way every once in a while, don't we? You ever get to the end of the things in your life and you're just like, man, I never envisioned it turn out like this. You're going to get to heaven one day and you're going to be conversing with Jesus and you're going to get introduced to the angels that have been alongside of you all the way along. He said, Michael's been here to help. I came to help him. He came to help me. It was getting kind of crazy around you. We brought in some reinforcements is another way to look at it. You were about to get overrun, but we weren't going to let that happen. It was looking kind of grim there for a minute in the spirit realm, so we decided to make sure that the victory was decisive because we've got Satan on a leash. He can't go any further than we let him. Father God has had it under control all along, 
And though it looks like at times Satan's winning the battle, he's not. We'll bring the resources to bear that are necessary to win the war. That's why when you read the book of Revelation, you can have that confidence. Satan's going in the bottomless pit. He's not somehow going to pull off a rebellion and rebel against God and win. It's not going to happen. Because the book of truth was authored a long time ago before the world was ever here. And it was imparted in a physical sense as Jesus came to this earth as the word and as the truth. Those are two of his names. He is the word of God and he is the truth of God. So he's saying about himself, I've always been the solution to the problem. And I want to share that with you. Because if I just told you the bad stuff, you'd be overwhelmed. But I want you to know about me. I I want you to know who I am and what I can do. There's a couple of words here. and If you look at the original text, there are some translational things here that actually help us understand what's being said. Because the Revised Standard Version, which is probably the most accurate into the English, it says, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. And that's a good word, not just written. It's inscribed. You see, when we write things and then we spill our coffee on it, you can't read it anymore, right? If you have an inkjet printer and your kids, you know, put the stuff up on the counter, you wash some dishes, you can't read it anymore, right? So written things really are not all that permanent. But how about inscribed things? Inscribed things are a little bit different quality, aren't they? And so what the Lord is saying to Daniel is, these things were inscribed. They're etched in stone is what you need to take from it. They're they're in granite. And, And they're not just kind of scratched on the surface. They are inscribed so deeply they can't be altered. Now, we're blessed because we have an awful lot of archaeological artifacts from this particular time period. As I shared with you, you can go see the Nabonidus Chronicles on a giant stella. You can look at some of these clay tablets. The reason you can do that is they were inscribed. They're actually cut into clay and then fired, and and they're still, you can read them today because of that. Now, imagine if the Lord wants to make something permanent. It's not a web page that you accidentally click something and it disappears. It's inscribed in heaven. It's always been there. It's always going to be there. It will forever be there. You can count on it. Timeless truth of the word. It's permanent. And God's word is unchangeable. It it doesn't ever get altered. One of the things that's always necessary for us to hold in view when we study God's word is though we're reading it in a context of our modern world it's just as true today as it was then and as it will be in the future doesn't matter what year you read this in it's still going to be true doesn't matter what context you read it in it's still going to be true because it isn't really from this earth It's from the character, the nature, and the heart of God. And it existed before time. It exists in time. And it will exist after time. That's the enduring part of what the Word of God does in our lives. It's a constant in the midst of all kinds of things in flux. 
why David could write there in the 119th Psalm, Forever, O Lord, is your word settled in heaven. Forever. It's not an ancient book. When people throw that argument out, it's a straw man argument. It's based on the fact that it is an old book. But the truths are actually timeless. From a a practical standpoint, when you look at the Word of God, you're examining what God has always been since the very beginning. You're not reading something that was written by Daniel. You're reading something that was authored by the Holy Spirit through men of old. But the author was God. That's why it doesn't change. That's why David could say that. And matter of fact, he would go on to say, Jesus himself said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word abides forever. Amen? That's a huge difference between any book. It's really funny. You know, as I sit here and I was kind of going through my library and trying to figure out what I wanted to stick in my office and those types of things, I realize I have a lot of worthless books. You know, you, you, things that you bought at some point in time, you're like, oh, this is a good book, and you put it on the shelf. Mankind is in the habit of writing an awful lot of worthless books. And I mean a lot of whole books that are completely worthless. I mean, you open them up, and it's just like, why did I ever buy that? I spent twenty nine ninety five for that in 1973. That's insane. That was $10,000 today. You know, and you look at these books, and you're like, man, we're kind of a wordy people, aren't we? Check out your Bible. That thing's not going to change. It's been the same yesterday, today, and forever for a long time. And it's going to be here a long time after we're all gone. Because it's eternal. That's why Jesus could say, my word will not pass away. He went on to say that that passing away, Peter said, will occur with a great noise and fervent heat so much so that the earth itself and everything on it will melt away. But the word of God will endure forever. It's timeless. That's why as the Lord came to Daniel and he speaks these things, you know, he's just kind of reminding us of what actually matters. I get into discussions, we'll call them very frequently, with people who maybe have gone to secular counselors. And they come to me and they tell me they have the disease of this or the disease of that. And we have a little bit of a debate. And I tell them, you don't have a disease at all. You have a sin issue. I said, you're in sin. You don't have genetic problems. You have a sin problem. And they'll go, well, you know, I no modern science. I go, trust me, modern science will be proven wrong more often than not. But the word of the Lord says you have a sin issue because God did not create you without the capacity to defeat sin in him in Christ Jesus. You can defeat that sin. But if you believe in the words of man, you're going to struggle with it for the rest of your days. The word of the Lord is you can be free from sin and death. So people, eh, well, you know, that's just, it's an old book. Yeah, it's an old book that's right 100% of the time. And as you, as you pick up the diagnostic and statistical analyses of mental illness, 
<laughs> it's crazy how many things are, are a mental illness now. You realize that shopping went on the list this last year? So you're all free now. You have the disease of shopping, so you can't help yourself. Yes. His word won't pass away. And he says that we can be more than conquerors through him who loves us. Daniel says, I will tell you what's inscribed in the book of truth. That's why people ask those religious questions. They're always asking the same basic questions. Well, how do you know there's a God? How do you know there's an afterlife? It's all the same basic questions. The answers have always been the same. I don't have anything new to tell. Any people come back and they expect me to have some new answer. I tell them what the Word says. Well, I don't believe that. That's not my problem. Truth is truth. It's what you do with truth that matters. There's an interesting passage again in the book of Isaiah in chapter 8, and it refers to a group of witches and wizards and mediums. It's, it's an interesting thing. Because basically what it says, there in verse 20 of Isaiah 8, it says, To the law and to the testimony, they speak not according to this word, because there's no light in them. People who don't like what the word says find problems with what the word says. The problem's not that it's not true. The problem is they don't like what it says. And that's always been the problem. People don't like having their sin pointed out. They don't like knowing that there's a God who has the ultimate authority over their life. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11 says, Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God, and whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which is from God that he supplies. And so that in all things God might be glorified through Christ Jesus to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever and ever. You see, that's the picture that Daniel's getting. He's saying, Daniel, there's going to be all kinds of... Hell's going to break loose on the earth someday. It's going to get really ugly. But while I'm fighting the prince of Persia and while I'm fighting the prince of Greece and while those demonic hosts come... Not only do I have sufficient ability to defeat them, but I also have sufficient ability, ability to keep my eye on you and what's going on in your life every moment of every day. And my word's going to endure. What I tell you is going to be true. And that word is inscribed in our hearts. It's not just some self-help manual. I have a lot of counseling books. And sometimes I'll pull those counseling books out and, you know, it's interesting how you can take, you know, a simple thing like be therefore a doer of the word, not a hearer only deceiving yourself and how you can write an entire book on, you know, 12 words. But people do that. But the truth is found in the word. The truth is not found in the words, plural. The truth is found in the word. What did God say about it? What was God's position all along? And that's what Daniel's getting. He's getting a private word from the Lord. He's saying, I've got this. 
It's going to be okay. As Paul would write to the church at Corinth in the second letter, chapter 3 and verse 3, it says, And I will show you that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. That even our lives, God has scribbled down in the annals of history, as far as God is concerned. He's known every detail. That's why Scripture declares he knows the number of your days. He knows the number of hairs in your head. He knows your comings and goings. David even went so far as, if I descended into the very pit of hell, you would find me. And if I were in the heights of heaven, you would know where I was at. God doesn't lose control. He doesn't lose sight. He's always sovereign. But he goes on to say, for the spirit of the living God is in us, not on tablets of stone. In other words, it's not just inscribed in stone, but it's inscribed in your heart. That's why it's so important to take in the word of God. Because if you take that in and it's inscribed here, that's why David could say, Thy word, O Lord, have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Because all sin actually is sin against God. We have actions against other people or maybe whole groups of people. But the bottom line is the missing of the mark is against God's mark, not against someone else's mark. It's against God's mark. And so that word endures. It's inscribed. That's why that new covenant is inward. It's not outward. That's why Jeremiah said that there in Jeremiah 31. That's why Paul, as he wrote to Timothy in his second letter to Timothy, as he's instructing this young pastor, he says to him, for all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's not a book of man. It's been in heaven all along. It came to the earth in Christ Jesus. He was the living word. Amen? He lived it. God then instilled those principles and everything that Jesus did into the hearts of men. Those men wrote down under the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit those things which Jesus did and said. Those things have been collected and gathered. They still are with us today. But all... Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, in other words, teaching us how to live godly, for reproof, correction, helps us to know what's wrong, for instruction, helps us to know what's right in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect. You see, if we actually did everything that's in here, guess what the result is? You'd be perfect. Good news is... Everybody's a failure, so we're all in together. Nobody's going to actually make it. But it's here. The instruction manual is is in your laps. The possibility is before you. It's before me. And so as we apply this, it kind of looks like this. You've got some angels that are helping out the Lord in defending you. Jesus said the same thing, by the way. Hebrews says the same thing. Are not all angels, it says there in chapter 11, ministering spirits on your behalf? That's where they're at. They're out there kind of doing battle behind the scenes, making sure the enemy doesn't get the upper hand. Doesn't mean bad things don't happen. Just means they can't ever win. That's why Paul would write, and we're going to get to it, and we'll spend some time when we get there to Ephesians chapter 6. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, amen, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age. That's where the fight's at. You know, we look at it, it's that person. Maybe it's our spouse. Maybe it's, you know, Uncle Joe. Maybe it's that, 
you know, person at work that you just think has it all out for you. Behind the scenes, there's a demonic host of wickedness that has sufficient resources to know what really irritates you. Exactly how to get to you, how to twist your buttons, how to even inflict some physical pain on you, how to cause your life to seem like, man, I don't even want to do this anymore. But know this, on the other side, which is the winning side, is the Lord. And he's going, I got the Prince of Persia, I got the Prince of Greece, and I got you. So don't worry about it. Be at peace. Notice the application there. Be at peace. We fight in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can be at peace. Doesn't mean that there isn't a battle going on, but we can be at peace. Sometimes when I get amongst other Christians, it's just, it's kind of sad. Because they really don't trust the Lord. Just like Isaiah trusted in Uzziah. Just like Joshua was prone to trust in his army. We need to learn to trust in the Lord. Because in Him we have victory. In Him we have strength. In Him we have peace. In Him we fight and we win. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for that promise. Lord, we thank You for this incredible picture of what goes on behind the scenes. And that's why the Apostle Paul could say, not that I am sufficient, but my sufficiency is in Christ. Not that I'm able, but you are able, Lord. You can deliver. You are our strength and our fortress and our strong tower and our shield, our mighty one in whom we can trust. And so, God, tonight as we, your people, ask of you, Lord, give us more faith. Strengthen our faith, Lord. Help us to believe that you do, in fact, have it under control. Help us to live in that peace that guards our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. Help us to walk in the strength, not of our own selves, but of the power that holds the universe together. Lord, the one who has defeated the wicked one, and we're simply waiting for that victory lap. God, we love you. We thank you that we are more than conquerors. We thank you that our strength is in the Lord. We bless you, God, for your love for us. Lord, as you said to Daniel, so we receive, Lord. We are the beloved of God. As you sent Christ Jesus into this world, that the world through him, through you, Jesus, would not be condemned because it already was condemned, but through you would be saved. Lord, that's how much you love us. And if you saved us, you're surely able to get us home. For he who began that good work is able to complete it to the day that you call us home. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. The man who will come. The man who is there. The one who has our backs. It's in his name we pray. Amen.